The rituals we perform around death have two related but distinct purposes. The first is to help the person who has just died make the transition between life and death. The second is to comfort the living and to aid us in grieving and letting go. Ideally, these two purposes should support each other. Our grief provides energy the dying person's spirit needs to relinquish its ties to this life and move on to the realms of renewal. And we take comfort in knowing that we are providing what our beloved one needs. The ship is on the shoreline. The crossing it is near. The time has come to say goodbye to all who've loved you here. Give back your body to the earth like a child to its mother's breast, and may you then grow young again on the island of the West. Lay down, lay down your burdens, lay down your treasures too. The love you gave and gathered here is all you take with you. But know to me your memory will evermore be blessed, and may you then grow young again on the island to the West. They say there is an orchard across the farthest sea, where fruit and bud and blossom grow together on the tree. The hurt will there find healing, the weary there find rest, and may you then grow young again on the island of the West. It's a truth of the human condition that at some point we will have to deal with death, either that of a loved one or our own. None of us can escape it, but few of us in today's society have been taught how to deal with it. The elderly, the sick, the dying, they're put into nursing homes or hospitals. They're kept away from society and sometimes kept away from even their loved ones. Mainstream religions have their own liturgy and dogma to address these issues. But neo-pagans, we're kind of at a loss. After countless generations of religious persecution, we've lost a lot of our folkways, our traditions, our rituals surrounding the process of death. Now that people are generally allowed to worship as they choose, we have to rebuild, reconstruct, our rituals, and our belief structures. What principles do we hold dear? What concessions do we give to the dying? And how do we care for those who remain? We're going to try to answer some of those big questions on tonight's episode featuring the book The Pagan Book of Living and Dying by Starhawk and M. Maka Nightmare. I'm your host, Jason. And you're listening to the Esoteric Book Club. Welcome back, goblins! I'm your host, Jason, and tonight we are reading The Pagan Book of Living and Dying, Practical Rituals, Prayers, Blessings, and Meditations on Crossing Over. 
But before we get started, I need to take a moment to thank the members of the Esoteric Archive. Specifically, Soul Rising Studios, Grand Inquisitor Samantha, and Grand Inquisitor Annie Kay. Your contributions help to pay server cost, purchase reading material, and make sure that the cup on my ancestral altar never runs dry. For a bunch of ghosts, they're pretty thirsty. If you too would like to join the Esoteric Archive, go to patreon.com forward slash esoteric book club. All Archive members get early access to shows. Just not this one. Look, it's been a crazy two weeks, and I'm honestly surprised that this episode came out as early as it has. So, most of the time, Archive members get early access. Anyway... If you like what you hear and you want to help support the show, I really appreciate it. Has anyone looked at my website recently? If not, I'm going to tell you about two new features. The first is a merchandise tab where you can go and purchase t-shirts with different logos and designs on them. The next is a link tree that features all the guest spots that I've had on other people's shows. Whether it be Lifemancy, Cosmic Sponge, or Tracing Owls, you can find the links and easily listen to each episode. All of this can be found at esotericbookclub.org. Now, let's get weird. This book isn't an anthology, but it does have two named authors, references a group that they have in common, and has other contributions from the greater pagan community. Let's start with the lead author, Starhawk. Now bear with me, this is going to be a little bit of a long story. So the book was written and published in 1997. Despite that, everything begins back in the 1970s. Starhawk's first published work is the 1979 book The Spiral Dance, a rebirth of the ancient religion of the great goddess. To put this in context, all of the teenage hippies from the late 1960s have now grown and are young adults in 1979. Their ideals have grown to include neo-paganism, permaculture, and eco-feminism. At this time, we are also seeing the peak of the Back to the Land movement. And at the forefront is Starhawk. In 1979, Starhawk and her friends gathered together for Samhain, and in commemoration of the book, The Spiral Dance, they decided to actually put on a spiral dance. It turns out that this was wildly popular, and together they created a group called the Reclaiming Collective. Included in that initial group was M. Maka Nightmare. Just to give you a heads up, Nightmare is kind of a controversial figure at this point. She's done a lot of really good things, including serving on the Sacred Dying Board since 1997 when the book came out. She is also working on developing higher education specifically for pagan ministry. Her contributions to tonight's book are invaluable. That said, she did depart from the Reclaiming Collective in 2012. Now, in her own words, she cites the lack of coherent theology, 
the lack of intellectual rigor and carelessness in ritual. She is very clearly trying to focus on these aspects for her departure, except there is a little bit more. In 2012, the Reclaiming Collective modified their principles of unity to include transgender and genderqueer peoples in their statement. Just to be clear, this is a statement of inclusivity. In Maka Nightmare's departure letter, she states, quote, Many may assume that the adoption of a revised Principles of Unity, soon to be published, is my reason for retiring. However, my unwillingness to accept them is not my only reason. End quote. Frankly, this just places everybody in an awkward position. Nightmare isn't just an elder of the pagan community. She has a lot of very positive contributions to the community as a whole. But she also holds some very dated views. I'll be completely honest, her current views are a little confusing considering that the Reclaiming Collective was a champion of gay rights in the 90s. This was the height of the AIDS epidemic, and mainstream Christianity was blaming the virus on the sin of homosexuality. Their words, not mine. So for someone who is so progressive, someone who was a champion for the inherent dignity of the human condition, to say that transgenderism is a bridge too far is frankly a little confusing. I don't want to dwell too much on this. Like I said, it places all of us in a very awkward position because M. Maka Nightmare has done so much positive for the community that we really have to determine on our own, on a personal level, what level of engagement we are going to have with this author. In the meantime, let's just focus on the contents of this book. For the purpose of this podcast, I am going to skip over the entire first half of this book for a very specific reason. A lot of the first half of this book is a framework of the Reclaiming Collective's belief structure. The reason I'm skipping it is because, at this time, we're already familiar with that framework. This was the foundation for modern Wiccan practices. That said, as a historical text, it's rather interesting. You get a snapshot of the belief structure of early 90s Wicca. Some of my listeners may not be old enough to remember this, but the mid-90s had its own share of hot-button topics. Topics such as the AIDS epidemic, medically-assisted suicide, and the right to die and the dignity-in-death movements. This is the time period where we see the height of Jack Kevorkian, a doctor commonly known in the media as Dr. Death. Kevorkian was a proponent of medically-assisted suicide for terminally ill patients. He believed that patients should not be forced to live out the remainder of their lives in pain. Throughout his career, 
he assisted in the suicides of over 130 terminally ill, pain-ridden patients. These are patients who are already physically so far gone that they are incapable of carrying out their last wish, and that is simply to die. Finally, in 1998, Kevorkian was arrested and tried for the assisted suicide of a man who had Lou Gehrig's disease. He was sentenced to a 25-year prison term, of which he served 10 years. He was released on the terms that he not offer advice, be present for, or in any way assist in euthanasia of another human being for the rest of his life. The Reclaiming Collective was also present for the rise and wild proliferation of the AIDS epidemic in the late 70s and throughout the 80s. Because they're located in the San Francisco Bay Area, the Reclaiming Collective was at the epicenter of a lot of the controversy and a lot of the death surrounding the AIDS epidemic. Today, we know a little bit more about the virus, but at the time, it was believed that the whole thing came about from people in West Africa eating monkey brains and then having a bunch of sex, and that those people went on to infect others. It was all super racist and super homophobic. These beliefs were continuously spread by popular media that proliferated the idea that the virus primarily affected African-American populations and homosexual populations. And then came the case of Ryan White. Long story short, Ryan was not African-American, nor was he homosexual. He contracted AIDS through a blood transfusion at the hospital. Despite the notoriety of Ryan White's case, it took years for people to accept that AIDS was not just the gay disease. It was something that affected all of us. This is just some of the background history that you need to understand when you're reading the principles of the Reclaiming Collective. Today, it seems common sense that people who die from AIDS should be treated with dignity, or people should not be forced to live in constant pain. But in the 90s, these were hot-button political issues. And, since these are issues that involve death, they made their way into this book. This book contains rituals, prayers, songs, chants, poems, and meditations, all dealing with aging, death, and rebirth. But more importantly, it includes dealing with those who are left behind. Because this is an older book, I want to point out a few instances where the authors are really, really progressive, really ahead of their time in their thinking. The first part that I really appreciated was when they're explaining the, the death and rebirth cycle and how karma plays into it. They made special note to point out how karma can oftentimes be used to be super ableist, to say that people who are having a hard time in life, who are sick, injured, or poor, that maybe in some way they deserve that because of the past life and how that in turn is not only unfair, 
but can also add to your own negative karma. Encountering people in this situation in their life is an opportunity for compassion, something to benefit you and them. But when you use it as a way to look down upon those people, it in turn hurts both of you. The Reclaiming Collective also had an early understanding of cultural appropriation. Take note here what the original definition of cultural appropriation was. They say, quote, Cultural traditions are often taken out of context and stripped of their meaning, or used to make profits for those who are not part of the culture the traditions come from. So cultural appropriation, according to this definition, is when a tradition is used for aesthetic purposes or for financial gain by those who are not associated with that culture. I also want to take a moment here to point out one very important thing. This is about culture, not race. It's strange to think, but advocacy against cultural appropriation has gone so far in the modern age that it is sometimes racist. I'm not being facetious either. I've seen people advocating against cultural appropriation based on how white or how black an individual appears. It's super gross, so stop it. Now, the authors of this book also take the idea of cultural appropriation a little bit farther, and they take it in a direction that is rather unique, one that we seem to have largely lost in the modern age. They say that neo-pagans should really sympathize with those affected by cultural appropriation, because a lot of our own beliefs, our own faith structure and folk traditions, have been stripped away by mainstream religion and colonialism. I would even take this one step further and say that our beliefs have been commodified by capitalism. Then again, capitalism is really about making money from any source possible, so I guess paganism isn't really unique in the grand scheme of things. Moving on, let's take a look at why this book was written. In the late 80s and early 90s, both Starhawk and Maka were affected by the death of a loved one. When Maka's husband was dying in 1988, they realized that there really were no pagan resources to draw inspiration from. They drew heavily from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, but ultimately they realized that they were going to have to craft their own material. In August of 1992, Starhawk's mother died. Now, she was an Orthodox Jew, and Starhawk was a pagan. In a way, this made things a little less complicated, because there was already an established written tradition that she could draw inspiration from with her mother. But this also caused Starhawk to realize that she didn't have a tradition of her own to rely upon. Together, Starhawk and Maka created the first draft of this book, entitled Crossing Over. In the conclusion of the first draft, they asked readers for feedback. And boy, did they get a lot of feedback. They received an additional 40 contributions from readers around the world. 
a lot of these contributions found their way, in some form, into the second edition of this book. What I personally found rather helpful, and what would probably be helpful to those who are actively mourning, there's a lot of personal anecdotes included within these pages. These anecdotes help to highlight specific lessons. Lessons like, live in the moment. But realistically, who remembers to do that? We all get caught up in the mundanity of everyday life. We don't take time to smell the roses, so to speak. That's one of the dark gifts of death. It reminds you that life is fleeting, and you never know when your end will come. It seems trite to say that you should live every day as if it were your last, but that doesn't make it any less true. Another lesson from death is the lesson of forgiveness. Now, Starhawk wants to make it very clear that, yes, you should forgive dying family members if they so desire it. But only if they're penitent of their past actions. If they were horrible people and feel no shame for what they did, no, you absolutely do not have to forgive them. Forgiveness is important not just for the dying person, but also for those who are left behind. And not just for the aggrieved person, either. This includes the extended family, people who are otherwise affected by your conflict. That said, this book also acknowledges that there are some things that are unforgivable. So don't worry, you don't have to forgive someone, but if you are able to, it is beneficial for everybody involved. To help facilitate this, the book gives you a forgiveness meditation. It says, quote, The following meditation can help us acknowledge hurt and move us towards forgiveness. It can be used before working with the dying or by a dying person to help clear away lingering wounds or resentment. End quote. I'm not going to go through the entire meditation, but I can summarize a little bit of what it does. It's going to answer a few questions for you. It's going to help you answer, Why am I angry or hurt? Is the other person aware of my feelings? And, what are my feelings doing to me? The meditation concludes with an exercise that allows you to visualize energy attachments between you and the aggrieved person. The exercise helps you to remove these energy attachments, these points of contact, these points of conflict between you. Ultimately, it's an exercise in letting go. The next part of this book that I want to highlight is the section on the dying process. As is summarized in the book, dying is similar to giving birth. All these processes will happen in their own time at their own pace. This time period between life and death is exceptionally difficult for the caretakers. They are living in a constant state of anxiety, and this anxiety has all of their senses turned up to 11. 
While this hypersensitivity is typically rather stressful, it also means that small gestures have a magnified effect. Something as simple as bringing a person their favorite coffee could reduce them to tears. But in this instance, it would be tears of gratitude. This is a role that pagan clergy needs to be aware of and needs to step in to fill. They're not necessarily going to be the caretakers, but they're taking care of the caretakers. They're making sure that that person's basic needs are being met. Have you eaten today? When was the last time you had something to drink? When was the last time you stood up and walked around? When was the last time you slept? Sometimes in that role, you need to be a little forceful. Instead of asking, when was the last time you had something to drink, you simply say, here, drink this. And in the occasion that the person says, I'm not thirsty, you have to be direct. You have to reply in a way that says, I didn't ask if you were thirsty. I asked you to drink this. Sometimes it's as simple as sitting down and having a basic, everyday conversation with a person. Sometimes these caregivers need to be reminded of, quote, the beer and pretzels aspects of life. You know, the mundane, the common, the normalcy that we take for granted. Just be cognizant of the topics that you bring up. Remember, you're trying to be normal, but you're also likely sitting in a hospital or in a nursing home. Finally, I want to talk about a special circumstance that I don't believe I've ever seen anywhere else. And that is organ donation. Now, a lot of pagans have an understanding and a belief of animism. On the surface level, that means that everyday objects can have a spirit. Lots of people oversimplify this by saying, oh, this tree has a spirit, or this rock has a spirit, or this book has a spirit. And while yes, that is to some degree accurate, it's more about the pieces of a whole also having a piece of spirit attached to it. We've all heard at least one paranormal show where somebody receives a donated organ that saves their life. But after doing so, they pick up a new habit, or a new food craving, or something unusual that wasn't part of their personality to begin with. After a little research, they find out that that may have been an aspect of the donor's personality that stuck around with the organ. What the Reclaiming Collective has done is create a series of rituals that allows spirit to be separated from the body. The releasing of a spirit from an organ is something that can be done before the organ is donated or after the organ has been received. Now, something that runs parallel to this is a ritual for actually receiving a donated organ. The purpose of this is for the recipient to acknowledge the sacrifice made on their behalf. And in doing so, hopefully give some closure to the deceased individual. And finally, there is a greater group ritual of thanks that goes to the donor. 
This is something collective, something that the family, the extended community can do on behalf of the donor, usually around the time of Samhain. By itself, this all may sound a little much, but you have to remember that this is all held under the umbrella of reincarnation and karma. Someone just gave you a literal piece of themselves so that you may continue to live. Not showing the proper amount of gratitude could be viewed as negative karma in itself. This isn't the only special circumstance that is highlighted in the book. There is a section on death in the service of others, although they specifically exclude military deaths because it goes against their creed of nonviolence. There's a section on miscarriages, stillbirths, and even one for abortions. And finally, there is even a section on the ethics and beliefs behind assisted suicide. Like I said, this book is very much a product of its time, for better or for worse. In fact, let's talk about that a bit. First, let's take a look at what made this book good. This book shows radical acceptance for diverse minority communities, especially for the mid to late 90s. They were very forward-thinking on specific topics that we are just now dealing with. Topics like gun violence in schools, cultural appropriation, and they even at one point talk about the Gaia hypothesis. And finally, they asked for feedback from the greater community, and then they accepted it and incorporated it. This demonstrates a level of self-awareness that you normally don't see from religious groups. Regardless of belief or denomination, a lot of times religious groups say, we have the answers, period. This is an instance where the leadership of the Reclaiming Collective said, we don't have all the answers, but we think that you do. And because of this attitude, they were able to adapt and grow. Now let's take a look at the negative aspects of this book. The belief structure of the Reclaiming Collective is strongly biased towards goddess worship, to the point where it says that worship of masculine deities inevitably results in violence although they do admit that femininity doesn't necessarily eliminate conflict. They also strictly define a witch as being a member of an initiatory tradition. Today we know that witch is a broad term that incorporates many belief structures. Witches may share a bunch of similar traits, but they're not a singular universal thing. They also proclaim the idea that the church was responsible for witch burnings and hangings. Today we know that that isn't necessarily true. It may have been their congregation that was doing the burnings, but the church actually at times throughout history stepped in in order to prevent excess death. For example, the Inquisition was created because so many villages were simply executing undesirable individuals, 
and using witchcraft as an excuse to do so. Church inquisitors brought up the novel idea of actually having evidence against a person before you execute them. Don't get me wrong, I'm not an apologist. There have been many, many historic examples where church officials simply stepped aside or didn't speak out against the actions of its congregation. There isn't a lot of direct evidence of church involvement in witch trials, but there is a lot of culpability for indirect action, or even negligence. There were times when leadership could have stepped in, but instead they chose to do nothing. But that is very, very different from saying that the church was burning witches. And finally, another blanket statement that not every witch or practitioner believes in, and that is the threefold law. I'm not sure if I've actually ever talked about that on here. Basically, the threefold law is a gatekeeping method that says whatever action you take will be returned to you threefold. This belief's current structure can be traced back to Gerald Gardner, the founder of modern Wicca, but ultimately the core of this comes from Hindu beliefs in karma. I find this incredibly ironic considering the group's progressive understanding of cultural appropriation. By this point, a lot of you are probably asking, well, is this a good book or not? I really don't like using that term because good and bad are ultimately rather subjective. This book is useful as both a historic tome and as an instructional guide. To my knowledge, this is still one of the very few books on pagan liturgy. It is also one of the very few books that addresses issues that are otherwise overlooked in spiritual manuals. While there are very few things that I would directly use from this book, it does serve as a very good framework for what ritual and processes can be used and developed for the purposes of end-of-life care. Historically, this book is so detailed that it gives us a very clear snapshot of mid-90s Wicca, specifically activist-based progressive Wicca. These beliefs provided the foundation for what modern witchcraft is today. Sometimes it's just as important to see where you came from as it is to see where you're going. This book isn't necessarily entertaining, nor is it a comfortable read. The subject matter is about one of the most difficult circumstances that any person can go through. So while this book isn't necessarily entertaining, I do think it's important. And for anybody that is part of pagan clergy, I feel that this book should be required reading. So there you have it. The Pagan Book of Living and Dying by Starhawk and M. Maka Nightmare. As always, I will have a link to the book in the show notes. Now, we're going to have an article at the end of the show 
in response to listener feedback. People were saying that they liked the show in its original inception, which had a book review and then news. So I'm going to be returning to that format. Tonight's article comes from the Koru Kathubodua Priesthood. If I mispronounce that, please let me know. Now this article is fairly recent. It was released on May 19th, 2023, and is entitled Spiritual Abuse in the Pagan and Polytheistic Community. Spiritual abuse has been around pretty much since religion began. But what exactly entails spiritual abuse? At its core, abuse refers to patterns of behavior that use coercive control. In this case, the coercion comes from spiritual authority, or at least perceived authority. In this case, someone is claiming to be a representative of the goddess the Morrigan. Using their self-proclaimed authority, they contacted the Koru and began to harass both their leadership and their membership. This person claimed to speak on behalf of the entire country of Ireland, ordered the Koru priesthood to disband, demanded that they turn over their sacred items so that they could be destroyed, and made a whole litany of demands basically revolving around an ultra-conservative family model. This caused the Koru organization to have an emergency meeting with its congregation. In response, they wrote this article, which helps people to identify signs of spiritual abuse. Despite the terrible situation that necessitated this article, it is an incredibly important document for everybody to read. So let's go ahead and break down this article and take a look at what is involved in spiritual abuse. The first thing you should look at is the leadership of the organization. Look for overly charismatic leaders who hyper-focus on people going through hardship. Look at the actions of that person's followers. Do they blindly defend and follow their leadership regardless of that person's actions? Do they create cliques or malicious social groups? Are their actions condoned by their leader's silence? Does that leader claim to be the sole representative of a specific god, deity, or spirit on earth? If you answer yes to any of the previous statements, there's a very good chance that that organization may be a cult. Now that is just one form of spiritual abuse. Not all spiritual abuse will come in the form of a cult, though. Sometimes it's a bit more subtle. Here's a few warning signs to look out for. Is the congregation not allowed to disagree with leadership? In abusive situations, leaders will claim divine authority, which means that you basically can't disagree with them because to disagree with them is to disagree with the gods. Do the members of the congregation attack anyone who disagrees with the decisions of leadership? Does the leadership get to choose who you can and cannot worship? Now this could be a little bit more subtle in saying something like, oh, you're not ready yet. Or it could be very overt in saying that you're not the right race to worship that god. 
Granted, most groups won't be that blunt. They'll use more subtle justification like ancestry or lineage. They'll make it sound heraldic or knightly. One, in reality, is just blatantly racist. Does the organization or its leadership dictate who you can and cannot have relationships with? This is usually done to isolate people, to make them more reliant on the group and its membership. They'll use phrases such as, Nobody can really understand you like we do. Spiritual abuse can also take the form of financial abuse. Now, there's a fine line between, you know, tithes and membership dues, and paying for services like weddings or funerals. But if they're demanding money and finances from you outside of normal reciprocity, that's a pretty big red flag. Now, this next one doesn't come up as often until, well until you're really deep into the group. And that is they try to restrict your freedom of movement. They choose where you travel, where you live, and where you work. Like I said, this usually comes after you're already pretty involved in the organization. That way you're less likely to question it. If you hit this stage, it's probably not the only sign of abuse that you're beginning to see. And finally, is excommunication constantly used as a threat to enforce compliance? Now, this probably wouldn't be a big thing for someone who's a new member. But for someone who's been in there and has invested a lot of time and effort and money into the organization, this could be a terrifying prospect. If you are starting to see signs of any of these in your organization, you need to speak up, and if leadership does not take you seriously, you need to get out. I know this is sometimes easier said than done, and it's hard to leave people that you've bonded with, people that you have relationships with, but if you're already seeing these signs of abuse, I can assure you, it will only escalate. So be alert. Be aware. And above all, be safe. Remember, nobody has divine authority to be abusive. Well, that's all I have for tonight, folks. Archive members, stick around. You're going to get to hear me go on a little bit of a rant. For everybody else, remember, this is the last episode of the season, so I will be taking a one-month break, which means I'll be skipping pretty much all of June. The Esoteric Book Club will be returning on July 17th. In the meantime, you can find the Esoteric Book Club on Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and at esotericbookclub.org. Intro and outro music is courtesy of Sarah Rudy and her band Hello June. You can find more of them on bandcamp.com or at wearehellojune.com. So until next time, remember, stay weird. the first of the month. Don't forget to blow your cinnamon. 
How many of you are tired of hearing this? I know I am. And I am tired of seeing it every single month on every single Facebook page.